This is a record made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals the subdivision redemption and this evening is the first study under the heading of sanctification. It is our custom in these meetings to read the scriptures together and those of you who are listening who care to join us will you switch off for a little while while we read Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. See, the note that is struck in this epistle to the Hebrews is not justification by faith, but sanctification. If you look at the first chapter of Hebrews, you will notice that when the Apostle refers to the great sacrificial work of Christ in verse 3, he says, when he had by himself purged, purged our sins, a purification for sins. That's all he says. There's many other things that he did that is fastened upon. And the word sanctuary and holy runs through this book. It's the great uh, epistle stressing the need for sanctification. And I think in um, one sense we can say at the uh, in chapter 9 when it says that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, I believe at long last we will come to the conclusion to be perfect as, con as concerning the conscience and sanctification and holiness get very near the same thing. Now, as far as I can see, we shall have to do some preliminary studies this evening and reserve a survey of Hebrews on this one subject for another time. This is a wonderful theme. It's one that we should approach spiritually with our shoes off our feet for holiness is the very centre of all the revelation concerning the character and nature of our God. I've said in this meeting before this that if we could see the correspondence of any business firm in this vicinity for one year we should find possibly they spoke of the word right and just and true, and good, and beautiful. But if they were not dealing with scriptural things, it's not conceivable that any firm in this district would ever once have dictated to a typist the word holiness. This belongs exclusively to God. Some time ago, I went to Strangeways Prison, and there I drew on the blackboard a pair of scales to emphasise what justice is, what righteousness is in the teaching of Scripture. This last week that's passed, when I was in Manchester, once again I entered that dreadful prison. And there, with about 25 long-term convicts who willingly and voluntarily came to that Bible study, I took the other side of the story. I put on the board, first of all, these rather awful words on the blackboard. Adultery, Murder, unclean speech, unclean clothing or habits. And of course they looked at me. Well, I said each one of these that I'm going to refer to under those headings was the Lord's anointed. For one was named David, one was named Isaiah, and one was named Joshua, and prophet or priest or king in Israel all had to confess that they were unclean and needed something that no mortal man could give them. So I said, it's all right. You inside the prison, 
Isaiah in the temple, David on his throne and Joshua the high priest, we all stand like that before God, a little difference in degree, that's all. There's not one of us, not one of us, by ourselves, could enter into the presence of God. Don't forget that the God who so loved us as to give his son for us is also described in the same book that our God is a consuming fire. And any portrait, any hesitation with regard to our need of absolute sanctification in his presence is just fatal to anyone. When we come to the epistle to the Romans, we find this, that he is just and the justifier. Because a just God could have nothing to do with anybody who wasn't justified, so he justifies us by faith. Well now he's a holy God, and he cannot have anything to do with any of us unless we also find a sanctification that will be accepted in that presence. I think we've only got to say these words, haven't we? To show how absolutely impossible it is for anybody to provide either a righteousness or a sanctification of their own doing. Or some people go through all sorts of mortifying processes. They wear uncomfortable clothing, they scourge themselves, they fast, they do with all sorts of things and not a scrap that they do can make them holy before God. If they have been sanctified by the Lord and if they are taught by His Spirit, they may, go, they may then begin to discipline themselves and mortify their members which are upon the earth. But that's only an afterwards. That's not the root, that's but the fruit. So we've got a very serious subject before us. And the first thing I think that we ought to um, remember is this, that justification does not change the sinner's nature. It changes his status. Because God justifies the ungodly. Abraham believed in the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. He wasn't immediately righteous in the sense that he never committed sin anymore. Not Abraham. So we have, first of all, justification and its work. Now, sanctification. First of all, we have a basic sanctification. We are sanctified because we belong to Christ. If you turn to the first epistle to the Corinthians and the first chapter, you find that the Apostle Paul has no hesitation in calling the church at Corinth saints. But I hope nobody in this congregation is going to try to copy the Corinthian church, for they were an abominably unmoral people. So much so that Paul, even in his own day, said they were carrying on so that he couldn't even mention in words what they were doing. So you see, there is first of all a basic sanctification, just the same as there's a basic justification. But just as a person who is justified by faith is expected to manifest that he will now act righteously, so a person who is sanctified by the work of Christ completely will then seek to adorn that doctrine by a consistent walk. So we've got those two things to keep before us. When we come to the question of sanctification, I think it touches the nature of a person. Redemption delivers us from bondage. And if we've got the type of Israel in our mind, Israel were just an unholy, disobedient, gainsaying, murmuring, lustful people after they crossed the Red Sea as before. Even Aaron, 
The high priest who ought to have known better made a golden calf. There was no change of nature under redemption. But after you are redeemed and separated by that to the Lord, he begins to take you in hand and you have then exceedingly wonderful promises whereby you are partakers of the divine nature and so you escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, there's a beginning. And we have in the epistle to the Hebrews that he disciplines his sons that they may be partakers, not of his divine nature there, but partakers of his holiness. It's almost staggering to think that these things are written, but they are written for our learning. Then as we read Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, we were conscious that while we bless God, that we do not have to have the ashes of a heifer sprinkling us because we're unclean, yet we see in all those types and shadows all that multiplication of Levitical law which said this is defiling and that is unclean and you mustn't eat this and you mustn't wear that and you mustn't do this. It was all to impress upon them and us this unspeakable thing, this holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. As I say, one of the things which is picked out in Hebrews is that none of these offerings touch the conscience. They were types and shadows. But the reality touches the conscience and so gets it onto another plane. I said we would reserve our study of Hebrews till next time and that's how I go about it, starting taking up our time like this at the beginning. Well now first of all, shall we face one or two passages which emphasise that the God we deal with in the scriptures is holy? You say, well I know a good many passages, yes, but we want to be sure about them, we want to see them for ourselves. Leviticus chapter 11, 44 and 45. And I, in my vestry just now, I looked up to the Lord and I said, Lord, thou art a holy God, but you're very kind. For I made a complete mistake of all my references and if I'd stood up here without checking them, I wouldn't know what to have said and what to have done for a few minutes. That's kindness as well as holiness. Oh yes, our God. So it's all right, I've got them rectified beforehand, you see, friends. Leviticus chapter 11, 44 and 45. For I am the Lord, your God. Now, four links with earlier verses. Supposing we look back just um, verse 42. Whatsoever goeth upon the belly... Whatsoever goes upon all four, or whatsoever hath more feet among all creeping things that creep upon the earth, them ye shall not eat, for they are an abomination. Ye shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creepeth. Neither shall ye make yourselves unclean with them, that ye should be defiled thereby, for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy. For I am holy. Now this passage after passage repeats that statement. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And in the Old Testament, it was not so much the conscience, but it was observing these laws of purification. These laws of defilement. Separating themselves from this and that. And of course with the people who have not got their conscience exercised, that turned them into a nation ultimately of Pharisees. 
There's human nature again. Observing the letter of the law of purification, but having no heart touched by it, so that they reserve to themselves the idea, we are the people of God and the outside world are just dogs. Well, here we have a stress then. And I could give you many other passages. Perhaps we'll look at two or three more in Leviticus, just to make sure that this is emphasized in this one book. Chapter 19, verse 2. Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. And then it goes on once more with instructions how they to comport themselves. I won't multiply these passages, but I think you know so many of them. But I would like now to turn once more to the epistle I wasn't going to refer to, that is Hebrews, um, because there we have a statement that we must keep in mind as it governs a good deal of our study. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. For they verily, that's our fathers, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, that is God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. I think if those words weren't written, most of us would hesitate to say we could ever expect to be partakers of God's holiness. Any more than if Peter hadn't written the words in 2 Peter 1.4, we should hardly have thought we should ever be partakers of the divine nature. Well, we must be careful how we use the words, but nevertheless, there's the goal before us. And in this same chapter 12, we have in verse um, uh, 14, Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And at the end of the verse, verse 29, end of the chapter, our God is a consuming fire. That's holiness. Without the acceptance in the beloved, it would just be fatal to be in the presence of the living God. There's no possibility of avoiding it. Well now let's come back now to the um, idea of the word. First of all, let's notice that things, things may become holy because it will give us one idea. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 verse 5. When I say things, I shall be referring you to a place, as far as I can remember, I'm not sure, I think so. Exodus 3 verse 5. And the Lord said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Now, if you took a shovelful of that ground and sent it up to the agricultural college, together with another shovelful from somewhere else in the same vicinity, they would find no difference between one piece of soil or the other. There's no intrinsic holiness in Palestine, not in the soil, or in the place where the burning bush was. But, the presence of the living God made that spot a holy place. The same as the temple, the same as the tabernacle. It was made of the same material as any other house, but that was set apart for God. So we're beginning to see that one of the meanings of holiness in the Old Testament is something separated, set apart for God's use. 
purpose, worship, service, what not. In itself, itself, no different from anything else. Let's get another one in Exodus 35, verse 2. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day you shall be, shall be to you an holy day. There is no difference between one day and another, one set of 24 hours and the other, no difference whatever. If God had cared to make the fifth day a holy day, that would have been holy. But he said the seventh day is a holy day. Nothing in itself. Nothing, no, nothing happens on the seventh day any more than the sixth to show that it's holy. It's simply that God himself has segregated it, separated it for his own purposes. So I think we can see that there is, first of all, a basic sanctification. We are sanctified by the blood of Christ. We are sanctified through the redemption of Christ. And that's complete once and forever. But then there's progressive sanctification. We grow in grace. We add to our faith knowledge. And so we have the two together. Now I think, as I've said, it's basic. We better turn straight away to a passage which practically says so. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and I believe chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and toward the end of the that first chapter, the Apostle sums up his teaching. <coughs> he says that God has acted as he has, passing by the wise, passing by the great, sometimes stooping to use the weak and the small. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Then, he comes out with this marvellous statement, but of him, that is Christ, are ye, in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's a little particle slipped in here which is almost untranslatable, but it has the effect of saying this to the Corinthians. You know that Christ is your Redeemer. Well, I want you to know he's your sanctifier as well. So put it this way. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification as well as redemption. That's the effect of this word. So he's made all things to us. This is basic. Or if you look at the end of the next, so chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, 23, therefore let no man glory in them. He's back on the same argument. For all things are yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ's. And Christ is God's. So whether you need redemption or justification or peace or acceptance or forgiveness or sanctification, it's all, first of all, yours in Christ. Complete. But then, of course, as we know, we've only got to start reading chapter 5 of this same epistle and you're up against immorality that is not quite readable in a public meeting. And these were saints. And Christ had been made unto them sanctification. So you see, we first of all say, I'm sanctified only and completely 
by the grace of God and the work of Christ. And then don't sit back and fold your hands and say, that's the end of it forever and ever. Say, now, I seek by that same grace to rise and walk in newness of life and serve in newness of spirit. So that there shall be a practical outcome to the gift of grace that's already ours. I've just got a note here that someone said there were two schools of thought with regard to this question of sanctification. One school says, let go and let God. And the other says, struggle, struggle, struggle. And he says, I am a let go, let God man, but the struggle is to let go. So he was a bit between the two. There's a little bit of each in it, you see. We can look up to the ceiling and very piously sing, oh, to be nothing, nothing, and that's where you might end up, friends. But on the other hand, we do know that nothing that we contribute can make us holy. Only the work of the grace, the grace of the Spirit of God and the sanctifying of the blood of Christ and the growth and grace and the knowledge of the Lord through the Scriptures can accomplish that. Well now I think that we better take a few further lines uh, from these scriptures which give us various phases in the way in which sanctification is presented. Will you first of all look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. It's in a very terrible context. Chapter 2 is to do with the rise of the man of sin, the son of perdition, and all the abominable things, the deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, which is yet to come on the earth. Then in contrast, he says in verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So there you see, there was a, a means being used. It was a part of the elective purpose of God that they should be chosen. But he also chose the means. He chose them unto salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. Now you can't influence that. And belief of the truth that's your response. Of course, under the teaching of the Spirit of God, but nevertheless, he that believeth not is condemned, so he must have a responsibility about it. We're not just blanks. And then again, you see, um, in uh, still speaking about this question of being chosen, 2 Peter 1, verse 2, and the sanctification of the Spirit working together. 2 Peter 1 verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And of course there's a big controversy as to whether it's your obedience, or whether it's his obedience. I should imagine we better have both friends. First of all, his obedience comes first and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ 
and then our consequence, seeking to walk in steps, comes afterwards. For that's the way in which we get the uh, idea in um, this same epistle when it says that he has left us an example that we should follow his steps. That's the word chosen and associated with sanctification of the Spirit. And let's turn to the Acts of the Apostles 26 verse 18 to realise that the, one of many passages where the Apostle uses the word a saint for just the children of God, the simple believers, not making a distinction between one or another. The Acts of the Apostles 26 verse 18. He's giving a little definition of the peculiar character of his witness. Verse 17. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Sanctified through faith. So here we have the description of the church or the believer to whom Paul was ministering. They were sanctified by faith. And that faith, he says, that faith which is in me, as he would desire that it should be in you and me also. Well then we have this emphasis upon uh, being made. I think I ought to include 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as another aspect of this question of sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. First of all, verse 22. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Now that is what we can do by the grace of God. Abstain. Uh, But mere abstinence is not holiness. It's simply negative. You know there are some people who chase you about all over the place and they don't know that they're making parallels with Paul's statement when he says touch not, taste not, handle not. They think that's a quotation of scripture that they ought to use for themselves. I don't know whether they've ever sent it as a greeting card to one of their friends. Well he can quote that it's from Colossians but he says which all are perish in the using. I think I've given you the illustration before and I'll mention it again. When I've been in the country, I remember passing once a very fine hedge. It was beech. And it was winter. And I noticed that the leaves were all there, although they were yellow, they were dried, but they were all there. So in my innocence, I say to the gardener, what a job you've got, friends to pick all those dead leaves off that hedge before spring comes. And he looks me up and down and he says, you no need to pick them off. The new life inside pushes them off. You know, I met some Christians that are everlastingly chasing other Christians about and tell them they ought not to do this or they ought not to do the other. Oh dear, oh dear. They're trying to pick the leaves off the edge instead of letting the new life within be cultivated to push it off. They're making a tremendous mistake. All the attempts on the part of the flesh to make themselves ready for God, 
by abstaining from this and abstaining the other is only making them more odious many times in the sight of God and men. Here's the real thing, the life within that pushes it off. So he says, abstain from all appearance of evil. True enough, we don't go into it in order to aggravate. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. H? No, W-H. Now this is a play upon words, but it's a useful one. W-H-O-W-L-Y, holy means complete, doesn't it? Now if you will think of some people's idea of holiness, it's incompleteness. They're going to cut this off and cut that off and cut the other off, but God says no. If a priest in Israel had any deficiency in his body, if any one member of his body was deficient, it doesn't matter what it was, doesn't matter how much he said, oh, well, I've got rid of that because it was a temptation to me. He says, that man is not holy in the sight of God as a priest. He must be complete. Never think that merely denying and abstaining and putting away is holiness. That's a mere negative. Holiness is positive. And so we have the goal. Sanctify you holy. And then he goes on to explain. Your whole spirit and soul and body. See, the sanctification of the spirit. But you are spirit, soul and body. It should be complete. It should belong to the whole person. The body as well as the spirit. And the soul as well in between. So we have this very complete acceptance in the beloved, which is covered by this most wonderful word. Well, now we get in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in the epistle to the Ephesians an emphasis that washing is associated with the thought of sanctifying. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Um, and such were some of you all these thieves, covetous, drunkards, and so on. And such were some of you, but ye are washed. Don't forget this is chapter 6, following chapter 5, with all its awful revelation of their carry on. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So they were washed. And then you remember the passage in Ephesians, chapter 5 aware the apostle writing and the practical section he says in verse 26 or verse 25 husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church Here's another definition of holiness, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now those words belong to our calling as well. In Ephesians chapter 1, you remember it says that the very purpose of God focuses upon this. Chapter 1 verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame or without blemish. 
That's the purpose of God. Chapter 1. Here's the way it's brought about. Chapter 5. Christ does it. And he washes us, not with water in the liquid sense, but the washing of the water by the word. Now are ye clean through the word which I have spoken unto you, he said. I'm hoping you know that I'm sharing in this with you tonight. The washing of the water by the words going on. That you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh yes, I need this sanctification. And the very fact that you're saying that shows the word of God which is being opened up, however faultily, is finding out little weak spots and revealing how much it's necessary so that we grow into this glorious calling, this marvellous position. Well, service is involved in sanctification. Will you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2? 2 Timothy chapter 2, he's writing to a servant of God now. And he's writing to a servant of God whose name is Timothy. And he's writing to a person whose name means one who honours God or whom God honours. You say, don't you know which? No, no, I don't care. Because God says in his word, he that honoureth me I will honour. And Timotheus, you can read it backwards or forwards, it doesn't matter, two hoots. The first word, tiny, means to honour. The second part, theos, is God. And here's a man whose name means one who honours God. And here's the apostle using the word to imprint the thought upon Timothy's mind. He says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 20, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth. And some to honour, our version says, and some to dishonour, which is wrong. Dishonour is a positive thing with us. This means with no honour at all. Some are unto honour, some you would have in the drawing room, some you would have in the dining room, some you'd keep outside in the scullery. That's the difference. Not dishonour. No honour. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honour. And what's that peculiar character? Sanctified. And what else? Meat for the master's use. That's another fine definition of being sanctified, friends. Your conscience touched and perfected, and you in your service meet. Oh dear. Meet for the master's use. Even the Apostle Paul, speaking of himself, said, we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. But writing to another man, he can go a bit further and he can say, yes, you could be a vessel, not merely earth and only, but a vessel unto honour, meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. In Romans, the twelfth chapter is rather a searching passage. This is where he turns away from the dispensational section which occupies 9, 10 and 11 and now he begins to bring it to bear upon daily life and practice. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, you see, we get a little idea about this living sacrifice as though we've got to immolate ourselves upon an altar. We've got to shed blood or something. Oh no, no. The word sacrifice itself in the English language is made up of two parts. Sacred and the word fat. F-A-C-T. A sacrifice 
is that which makes a holy thing or a holy desire or a holy purpose or whatever it is a fact. And if you are a sinful person, the sacrifice will have to involve the shedding of blood. But there is such a thing as a sacrifice, which is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. A holy, acceptable, sweet savour. This is not a dead sacrifice or a dying sacrifice or a bleeding sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. It's now entering into the idea that the God we serve is holy. And instead of dreading to serve that God, we're beginning to realise it's possible by his mercy to be engaged in his service. And here's a few words that will help us in that direction. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Notice the way how he introduces this. He was an apostle. And he could have used the rod. And he could have spoken with authority. And say, I, Paul, the apostle, sent by Jesus Christ to have complete control over your spiritual life. I command you that ye present your impossible friend. God will not accept a bludgeon holiness. God will never compel a man against his wish to love him. Bless him be God, he won't. He still stands back and he invites us. And the apostle taking the same line, he beseeches where he might have commanded. He beseeches. And he refers to the mercies of God, not merely to the righteousness of God or the holiness of God. That ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy. And that almost makes you stop, doesn't it? We are going to present our bodies holy, acceptable unto God, which is your logical or reasonable service. You know, somehow we've got to know a tremendous lot of Romans 1 to 11 to have got to the point and say, yes, that's true. But of course, if you could enter into that ringing close of chapter 8, when you could dare contemplate standing in the light, and yet lift up your head and say, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Then you may step into this position too and say, this too is also equally possible. Now he gives you one or two words with regard to this holiness which is expected of you. And be not conformed to this world, conformed, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I think if most of us were honest, we are believers sufficiently now to be able to say, yes, I believe the will of God is good. I think we will all agree that the will of God is perfect. But will we all agree at all times and all circumstances that the will of God is acceptable? Friends, that's the rub. When you've got to the point that the will of God is acceptable as well as good and perfect, you're getting very, very near to the position which the Apostle was hoping that these were going to get to. And I'm talking to myself, friends, as well as talking to you, for I'm not there yet. If I were to tell you that whatever happens to me in life, I'm perfectly serene, unruffled, you've only got to ask a few people who know me to know that I'm rather exaggerating and not telling absolute truth. No. 
That doesn't alter the fact that that's what I could be if only I reach the goal that God has before me. Then he seems to give another corrective. For I say that through the grace given unto thee to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. And he comes back and he says, not one of us have got the same measure. He says, one has this gift, one has another gift. So we cannot make one another toe our line. Some people seem to spend half their time chasing somebody else about to make them toe their line. Well, we all have to toe one line that none of us can really say we have done perfectly. And the first one to be considered all the time is not the other man, but ourselves. One more word and I think our time will be up. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. In the last half of chapter 6, he gives a whole series of contrasts. Verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? All that list, all the way down. And when he gets to the end, he says in verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Separate is a part of this word, Kodesh, the Old Testament word for holiness, separate. Said the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, said the Lord Almighty. So now is the summing up. Having therefore these promises, that God will be to us a father, and we shall be to him sons and daughters, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves, He has cleansed us. But we now take part and we wish to be clean. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. Perfecting. Here's our word fact again. Making what God has done in Christ more like a fact in our lives than before. Ever seeking to produce in daily life and witness what we really are in him in the ultimate sense. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Unless we've got that thought, the idea of perfecting holiness sounds impossible. It's worse than trying to gild the rose or paint the lily. But to take holiness to its logical conclusion, as perfecting has got in it, tell I us the end, then, if God has sanctified us at such a cost as the gift of his Son and the work of his Spirit, and the wonder of his word, then, of course, it begins to act upon us, and we, too, seek. Now, there's a passage that you could well refer to. This afternoon, I kept giving them passages they refer to. I began to call it their homework. I gave them a whole number of psalms and different parts. I said, this is your homework after it's all over. Well, if you'd like to do a bit of homework with regard to this, first of all, you can do nothing. You're only cleansed by grace through Christ. You've done nothing. And then you start doing something. Washing your clothing. And washing yourselves. If you like to look at the cleansing of the leper, 
which is given in Leviticus 13 and 14, you'll see the basis in type of what the Apostle was saying here. Well, that's as far as, as I think we can go this evening in introducing this tremendous theme of holiness and sanctification. I haven't taken it uh, systematically. I haven't taken it as a piece of theology. I've given you passages of scripture here and there so that we can get side lights upon the thought and that's about as far as we could go in a meeting of this character. Now, next time we meet together, I think we shall be wise to do what I said at the beginning, concentrate our attention upon the references that we discover in one epistle, the epistle of the sanctuary, the epistle of the tabernacle, the epistle of the seated priest, namely the epistle to the Hebrews. Until then, may God give us grace to remember. And we're going to sing a hymn just now, after the notices are over, but I'm going to read one verse, because I feel that this so expresses the attitude of heart when once you've had this question of sanctification and holiness brought to your notice and bear upon your conscience.